0: This is the Create Love, Create Freedom podcast. My name is Allison Fisher, and on today's episode, we are talking about how people with avoidant attachment sabotage their intimate relationships. So first, we are going to be talking a little bit about how a person becomes avoidant, um, particularly in childhood, starts normally with their closest caregivers. I think it's important to remember that people with avoidant attachment long for intimacy and connection, just like everyone else. In childhood, these were the children who were exposed to repeated maternal rejection. Um... I think that it can be more than just simply maternal, you know, a mother. I think it can certainly be a father as well. Uh, But what's interesting to note about this repeated maternal rejection is that it wasn't necessarily overt rejection. When the child had attempts, needs, and bids for connection, You know, where they were reaching out, needing their emotions regulated, um, engaging in things that weren't just conditional about their performance, such as like being a good, a good child, a good athlete, a good student. There was a minimization of their emotions. And the child really interprets this as the parent dismissing their needs. And this dismissal is a sign of rejection to the child. So the child begins to deactivate. Um, I think what's interesting is some children will kind of reach out and, and grasp for that caregiver, that parent, and other children will deactivate. They won't look for that from their parents as much or anymore. So they retreat. They push away from closeness. They realize that they aren't going to get their needs met by their mother, by their father, by a grandparent, whomever it is who is their primary caregiver. And yet internally, they were really feeling all of the emotions and the feelings that come up when they don't get their needs met and when they feel rejected. They also, at that point, learn to not show their feelings or their needs. And this carries on into adulthood. Um, in adult relationships, their partners may think they don't care or aren't invested in the relationship because partly they don't show it and they don't ask for any needs of theirs to be met. When often they are panicked on the inside, Um, maybe it's a belief that they don't feel like they deserve that kind of love. And so they don't know how to share those feelings. And intimacy for them is often felt as being dangerous and unsafe. Even when, especially connected to someone who is, you know, um, either working on becoming securely attached or someone who has become securely attached, they, they still see it as unsafe, right? At this point, they have not worked on their attachment style, their their avoidance, their avoidant attachment. And so they're still in that place of feeling like intimacy is dangerous and unsafe. And what the avoidant does to reduce the vulnerability and intimacy Uh, that they feel is too much. They engage in certain strategies to remove or distance themselves from the relationship. They've got to feel safe again. And they tend to suppress their needs for connection in what they think misguidedly, but what they think and what they feel is getting themselves back to a safe place. And I I think it's important to distinguish that codependency is really a problem in addicted relationships. So when there's limerence, love addiction, not in attachment. Often we come from, well, I would say first, we as humans are wired to need one another. We're We're wired to need belonging, and we're wired to need attachment to other people. And so I think often when we come from unhealthy childhoods, we learn how to show our feelings, get our needs met, bond and intimacy, and connect with others in unhealthy ways. Um, Partly, it has been modeled for us, um, but partly... In childhood when those needs weren't met, we look for other ways to make sure that we remain safe. And in order to, I would say, perhaps have deeply fulfilling relationships, um, where we don't feel that need to kind of push or pull, we must work on the root causes of these insecure attachments and work on healing them. And the more that we understand the type of attachment that we have, the more that we understand the type of attachment that our partner has, um, the more that we can change and improve our behaviors in our closest uh, intimate interactions. And that allows us to get to a place where we feel uh, much more secure within the relationship. And then the relationship, the intimacy, the closeness is not a threat to us anymore. So avoidance, sabotage, intimacy, I really believe due to the limiting beliefs that they hold about relationships. And this isn't. Uh, simply true about avoidance. This is also true about anxiously attached people and also um, disorganized um, people with disorganized attachment. And it's a lot to do with a lot of, you know, the limiting beliefs, right? So let's take a little bit of time and look at these limiting beliefs and what they can sound like uh, to someone who is avoidantly attached. And remember to continue connecting this back to how the child felt, how they felt as a child in childhood, right? Again, the needs weren't getting met and they needed to protect themselves and create a safe space. So they withdrew. So these limiting beliefs for the avoidant person can sound like you have to have or, excuse me, you can have a great career, or you can have a loving partner and family, but not both. It can also sound like I always attract partners that need me more than I need them. And then I feel guilty about it, and I look like I'm the bad guy. Um, I am not allowed to have my own privacy because my partner thinks I'm cheating on them. My partner acts generous, but it's more like they're obligating me to stick around in the relationship. It can also sound like you should only marry someone that loves you more than you love them. Long-term relationships never work out. Someone always ends up miserable and leaving in the end. Long term monogamy is unrealistic because eventually everyone cheats. And it also can sound like relationships are unsafe because partners always demand more of me than I have to give. And I think looking at it from the opposite view of the partners of avoidant people, I think that the partners can often feel very confused by the avoidance lukewarm behaviors. Um, I have been in two relationships with avoidant men. Um, they've looked obviously a little bit different Um, in between those two, I was in a relationship with a disorganized, um, attached man and, uh, probably quite a bit of covert narcissism going on there as well. And, um, so I can say that, you know, since that point, like things have gotten better in terms of, the severity of the avoidance or the insecure attachment. Yet at the same time, I was confused in a relationship with an avoidant partner, where it felt like we were all in one moment, like when we connected, when we talked on the phone, that kind of thing. And then he was all out the next moment. And so it, it felt like a lot of push and pull, and there was very little time there in the middle where it was just kind of calm and, um, where it was just kind of—I I guess I would say even healthy, right? I wasn't either trying to kind of push him away because he was, you know, overly invested in talking to me or um, you know trying to move the relationship forward using words. But then on the other end of that it was long periods of radio silence. So and, and here are some keys. This is not to condemn anyone, but simply to kind of show um, how a partner might see the relationship. And you know this can be a good indicator for someone who does struggle with avoidant um, attachment where they can kind of see what their what their partner might also be feeling and seeing, especially if the goal is to find a partner who is more securely attached or has simply worked on that and gotten to a place where they are more securely attached. So in the relationship, he would be really needlessly mysterious. Not like the sexy kind of mysterious where, you know, you slowly learn another person or just simply due to their personality type, because there's some certainly are personality types um, that are more mysterious. Um, I would say at least in terms of the men that I've dated, when it comes to Myers-Briggs, I have dated an INTJ and an INTP. Uh, this man was an INTP. They were both type fives on the Enneagram. And they, in terms of their masculine archetypes, they were both king and recluse men. Um, So both the Zeus and the Hades kind of archetypes, which made a very delicious blend um and it had an air of mysteriousness but with this man it was he was needlessly mysterious um you know he wouldn't text or call for weeks at a time and i really had to address that and say two weeks is too long like you can go a few days like i understand that but you can't just like come in and out of this relationship and not kind of keep it even keel, you know, like some consistency, that kind of thing. And what he would really do is, you know, he would call and, and act as if we could pick up right where we had left off. Like he hadn't stepped away from the relationship for weeks at a time. Um, it was a very clear boundary of wanting me in his life, but wanting it on his terms. And that was another um, aspect of our relationship. Um, he, you know, was a plane ride away. I was in the process of, you know, working to move in that direction, not simply for him, but for, you know, um, a change, um, you know in career, a step forward, a bigger city, um, you know, access to a graduate program, some things like that. But, you know, also partly because I wanted to see how this relationship could move forward. And, you know, at that point, he was also my very best friend and had been for six years. And, you know, we were then trying the, um, you know, being in a relationship together And everything was always very much on his terms, Um, you know, because I have worked on becoming a secure person, um, much more secure, I would address or try to address problems as they come up. Don't get me wrong, I could still get frustrated or angry or uh, feel hurt or whatnot at times, but everything was always based upon his schedule and what really worked best for him it appeared that sometimes it was you know um us figuring out our schedules together especially the very first time we met um but after that it was always on his timing what was good for his career um and so you know that that really posed a problem because I, i'm a pretty generous person i'm pretty flexible um, But it always kind of felt like everything was on his terms. Uh, something else that he would do was um, he would live in short-term leases. And I never knew where he was living. And I always thought it was kind of weird. And he would also do this thing where he would share intimate details about his you know, um, frustrations or things that were happening in his family dynamic, you know, within his family, and also details about his daughter. But after a year of dating, and five years of being friends, I had never met any of them. I had never met his mother. Um, I had never been introduced to his friends. Granted, I in over the course of that year, I only saw him twice, once every six months because that was what was good for him. Um, And I only spoke to his daughter a couple times on the phone. When we would get together, uh, you know, again, in a hotel room, because I never knew where he was living and he never invited me there. And he always kind of blew it off as like, oh, well, you know, I don't know where, uh, you know, exactly where I'm going to end up. Um. But then he would also talk to me in our conversations about how, you know, he wanted to build a home with me. And so it was never quite congruent. And so when we would get together, it would be, you know, uh, staying at a hotel, which was which was fine um, until the point where it wasn't. And it was it became a problem um, because I was never invited anywhere else and then after i flew home he would tell me he wanted to see me again soon you know like i've i've got to see you again um you know when can we get together next month but only to avoid making an actual plan with me and he would never fly out to see me um and then he would finally give in when we hadn't seen each other in 6 months and it's interesting because you know, three months would turn into four. And f- and I was fine. Like I was good. Okay, let's figure out when we want to see each other again, when we can get together. We're both busy people. Um, you know, he works a lot. I totally understand that. But four would turn into five and five would turn into six and I still wouldn't know. And what I found was my anxious attachment would come back a lot. And then I would question a lot of things. And I would ask him a lot of times, like, Am I asking too much from you? Am I asking for too much closeness? And he would always say, No, 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 you're not. Like, you're fantastic. You're this, you're that. But yet he would never create the plan for us to actually spend any time together. We would have long conversations on the phone, um, especially after he did correct. Uh, the you know, ghosting me for two weeks at a time. Um, yet at the same time, that never moved into the space of us seeing one another. And another um, kind of key, I would say, too, with with people who are avoidant partners, or if you're in an, in a relationship with avoid, an avoidant partner, is was really the level of commitment. So when we first got together. Like, he never asked me to be his girlfriend. And then when I talked to him about it after I'd flown home, he said, well, what do you want to be? What role do you want to have in my life? And I always found that a little strange. Like, well, wait a minute, I thought this was moving into, because i had made it very clear, like, this is the kind of relationship that I want. You know, date, and then move into marriage. And there was always a mismatch between what he said he wanted and what the relationship actually was. Um, he would talk a lot about the future, um, our future, uh, getting married, um, having children. We always called it raising superhumans. Yet he would do almost nothing about it. Um, you know, at one point we talked about, you know, where we would like to, um, you know, buy a house or something like that. Um, yet I would try to involve his daughter in those plans or try to kind of create that relationship. And what I realized was I I very much believe that he wants all of those things, yet Due to the trauma, the wounds in childhood, and having to meet all of his own needs, he has some really strong beliefs about what he wants. But in the end, his words and his actions never matched. You know, he wanted to, uh, you know, get married at some point, yet couldn't commit to spending time with me in person once every couple of months until I could move. And one of the, um, one of the last things that I'll share is that, you know, he would tell me maybe once a month, maybe once every couple months, but even after we broke up, he called me about four months afterwards and we had this long conversation and he talked a lot about himself and a lot about, you know, his trauma and whatnot, which I deeply wanted to help him heal from. But I realized I couldn't, I can't do any of the work for somebody else. But in, in a lot of those circumstances, he would tell me about all of the women at work or, you know, when he was just walking down the street who found him attractive who flirted with him, who gave him their number, uh, women who would touch him, um, make a lot of sexual innuendos. And I think partly because, you know, um, I kind of strongly represent with um, both the lover, but also the sage archetype. Um, I've had to come To my queen archetype through my maiden, (laughs) um, which is something we can talk about on another podcast episode. But um, having a lot of sage energy, I'm not a terribly jealous person. You show me the, you know, how important I am, how important this relationship is through your actions, not just your words. But I'm not like the deeply jealous type. Oh, I feel jealousy sometimes, but it was always very odd to me. Like he kind of had to show me that other women also wanted him instead of just relaxing into the relationship with me and the fact that I wanted him. Um. And again, I think that, you know, it wasn't until months after Ending both the friendship and the relationship. Um, I realized for me personally, I had to do both. Um, That I realized that he really hadn't done nearly as much self-healing work on himself as I thought. And he was consciously or unconsciously sabotaging the intimacy and the relationship due to his unhealed wounds and trauma, due to the fact that intimacy, closeness, belonging, he wants all of that, but it also feels very unsafe due to that residual trauma that was left over from his childhood. And I think that that's a really important key Um, when looking at how someone who's avoidant could sabotage the relationship. Like, why would they? Um, why would they feel that that was needed, even though I treated him in a way that I didn't feel was threatening? Um, sure, we, you know, intellectually and verbally spar with one another, and, um, you know, we could really piss each other off. And, um, you know, there was, the, you know, all the chemistry was there, all that kind of thing. But this, you know, he would often tell me, like, well, you know, you still have all these walls. But a lot of times the walls that I had were because. He kept, a, he kept me out of a lot of his life, a lot of avenues and areas of his life. He kind of compartmentalized certain things. He's got his mother and, you know, his, his family life. He's got his daughter over here. He's got his work. And then there's me. And it, it always kind of felt like I was left in the waiting room. And like I said before, I think one of the important things for someone who is in a relationship with someone who's avoidant, I think that they really need to realize that you can't change the other person. You can be there while they heal and while they grow and while they change themselves, but you can't do it for them. And if it becomes a detriment to your growth, to who you are, to stay in the relationship, I think it's important to reevaluate what is also good for you. Um, Because, you know, someone can be madly in love with you and still not be ready, Um, still not have healed the wounds that they needed to have healed. Um, they can love you in a way that you have never been loved and still not join you on the bridge. And for me, whatever their reasons, I I didn't believe that it wasn't because he didn't love me, but love isn't a relationship. And love only gets you part of the way. Love is certainly important, but it's, love doesn't make the relationship. There's a lot of other pieces that go into it. And so for me personally, whatever his reasons, I had to leave because of the, not, you know, not, because he was not working on healing and, and also uh, reconnecting himself to kind of his lost feminine. Um, he was a very masculine man, but he also really shut down the feminine a lot. And I think it's important, you know, sometimes we need to stick with the person or we sh- we want to stick with the person. And that is what is best because they're on a healing path and they're growing and they're working through a lot of their their challenges at a place where the dynamic of the relationship keeps changing and keeps getting better. Um, But sometimes that isn't the case. And sometimes you do have to close down the relationship. Um, And I think what's important to remember is you never have to inspire anyone to meet you on the bridge, to meet you partway. You never have to convince someone to do the work to be ready for you. There is more extraordinary love, more love than you have ever seen out in the world. And part of it is knowing and understanding and learning to love yourself um not looking for that from others yet and i think that definitely comes from the the previously um anxious side of me always seeking love trying to trying to attract it but like gather it in um cling to it when it got here versus i think the avoidant attached person who also needs to realize that it's okay to love others, um, to show them, you know, some of the spaces of you that you need to continue to work on. But it's also important that they're allowed to love you back. Um, And verbalize when you say, you know, verbalize those times when you say, Ooh, okay, this just got into some te- some territory where, you know, I've got some wounds and that's really difficult for me to hold space for. Um, but I, I really think it's the continuing to lean in and people will show you what they're ready for. Um, people will work on their self-healing, not for you, not for the relationship, but for themselves. And when that happens, it's a very beautiful place because regardless of whether or not we attach securely or insecurely, we all need to continuously do healing work on ourselves. Um, Trauma and wounds are going to come up even throughout adulthood. And working through that will be important. So there will be many iterations of who we are but doing so in a way and I think being very conscious and aware of how we sabotage ourselves and therefore the relationship, particularly because we don't feel safe um, and because we didn't attach securely in childhood. There was something about our environment and the interactions that we had with our parents that either makes us kind of want to cling to people or push them away, or a bit of both. So um, I hope that this discussion was helpful for you. These are just kind of some of the insights that I have definitely seen when it comes to avoidantly attached individuals in intimate relationships and, and where they will push push away and and sabotage the relationship, which can also be very, very difficult for their partners. Um, if you would like to get um, a bit deeper and go a bit deeper with uh, myself and our members club, our uh, Create Love Freedom community, um, please join us uh, in our members club. The month of June, uh, we are looking very deeply at avoidant attachment and anxious attachment. Um, and then in July, we're looking at disorganized attachment. So we're kind of completing the three um, insecure attachment styles. And then we're also going to touch on secure attachment. And not only for those people who did attach securely, um, but to also how to deepen that. And, you know, if you have attached insecurely, how to begin working on and continually work on becoming secure in who you are, and really healing some of those wounds from your childhood that really create the life that you want, um, the relationships that you uh, so deeply crave, and um, the freedom that that gives you. Uh, So until next time.